Matthew 19, <clears throat> we're continuing our way through the text. We jumped out of order last week because we had the kiddos in with us. So we looked at a less explicit passage for their sake. Matthew 19, I'm going to read you the passage, but we're going to be really focusing in on verses 7 to 9 today. The whole thing hangs together as a seamless passage. Um, so really you can't understand the section that follows in verses 7 to 9 or the section that comes after that where the disciples are asking him and he responds with uh, this thing on, on eunuchs. You can't understand either one without understanding what comes first. So it all hangs together. Uh, next Sunday I'm going to sum it up, bring it all together with the final passage and I'm going to show you how the whole thing hangs together. It either stands together or you start to pick apart parts of it and the whole thing falls. So be sure to be with us next week in order to round this out. Sorry, I'm having more homework. I've, I was reminded before I stood up to preach. See, I get up to preach, I'm like sing, single track, like focused in. Hit the pause button. I, I'm supposed to tell you that on Thursday morning, Odette gave birth to Amadeo Pascale Emanuele Caputo, baby boy of eight and a half pounds, and he is doing healthy and wonderful. They were released from the hospital. She was let go from the hospital last night. He is doing wonderful. They're at home this morning recovering. That's the first one. What was the second one? Now I feel weird because I know I'm forgetting something. But Right on! There you go. That's what it is. Star Wars special screening, two weeks' time. Make, it, make a note of it. It's coming. All right. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. All right, now let's get back to the text. <clears throat> now I feel good. I got all that off my shoulders. All right. Um, and be sure to come tonight while I'm at it. You know, and you don't have to dress for It's not a formal thing tonight. Next Sunday is the formal thing. Just come dress casual tonight and bring your favorite dessert nappy. First Baptist downtown. Okay, Matthew 19. Here we go. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife? For any cause. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now here comes the objection. They've got some scripture to throw at Jesus. They know he respects the Bible. And so they feel like they've got him trapped in a corner. Verse 7. They said to him, Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Hmm? Hmm? And Jesus responds. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed or permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, well, it's better not to marry. Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by other men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs 
for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand today exactly what it is that you're asking for in the commitment, the lifelong bond of marriage. Open our eyes to see that today and give us the confidence to trust you that a lifelong commitment yields greater joy and greater blessing than the short-term, temporary infatuation. Help us to see that faithfulness brings the deepest pleasure and the greatest happiness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Psalms are the psalm book of Israel. We don't have the musical score necessarily, but we have the lyrics of the Psalms. And the Psalms are songs that ancient Israel would sing. One of the earliest Psalms, Psalm 15, emphasizes that making a vow and keeping it are an essential part of righteousness. I'm going to read this to you. This is Psalm 15. Lord, who shall sojourn to your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? So that's the question. Who goes to heaven? Who gets to be with you? And here's the answer. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt yet does not change who doesn't put out his money at interest and doesn't take a bribe against an innocent man, he who does these things shall never be moved. One of the things that Israel was singing in the early days of the Psalms is to see the Lord, to be considered a righteous man, to walk with the Father, is to be the type of individual who makes commitments, and when you make a vow or you make a promise and you take an oath and you make a commitment, even if it comes back to bite you, even if it comes back to hurt you, you will still be faithful to that commitment. You swear to your own harm, as it says in Psalm 15, but you do not change even though it hurts you. That's something that's a totally foreign concept to us today in an age in which there are prenuptial agreements, an age in which we enter into marriage-type relationships with conditions and and, uh, caveats. That is a concept that is totally foreign to the Scriptures. It is a concept that is totally antithetical to what Christ intends for marriage, but it is also antithetical for what it means just to be a basic Christian. When we make a commitment, when we take a vow, when we promise and pledge ourselves to something, we do so carefully because our word is to be our bond. Our word is to be a reflection of our faith and our commitment to Christ, knowing the sovereign ultimately guides our lives. And so we find in the New Testament that the Christian who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit is given certain attributes, all of them being necessary, all of them considered the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the common refrains is, well, I'm good on love, but I'm bad on kindness. I've got real good uh, joy, but not very much 
patience. And if you really consider the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, you understand love without kindness, two sides of the same coin. Joy without patience, well, if you're not a patient person, you're not going to be joyful for very long. All of these are attributes that should be a part of us as we yield to the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And here's what it says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. We like those things, but notice the one that comes next. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. From the Greek word pistis or pisteo, ranging in meaning from subjective confidence to somebody who can be relied upon, to fidelity, to commitment. All of these things are considered to be a part of the basic Christian life, to be faithful, to be someone that can be trusted, to be someone who says, I'm going to make this commitment and I'm going to hold to it. You can trust me on that. If we're going to cultivate faithfulness, if we're going to be like the people Psalm 15 sings about. Faithfulness can only be cultivated in commitments. Faithfulness can only be grown and refined in covenantal type relationships where we make promises to each other and we keep those promises. That's what Jesus is talking about here with regards to marriage. It is one of the most sacred promises Apart from your commitment to Christ, it is the most sacred promise that we are called to make. It is a covenant, it is a vow, and it is something that we are to hold to. Jesus teaches about it. He begins, he says, they're, they're like, hey, can we just divorce our wife whenever we feel like it? And he says, no, actually. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice what he says there. When a man gets married, when a man and woman get married, they leave the parents behind, they come together, they become one. Now notice carefully what he says here in verse 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. So they become one, they hold on to each other, they grasp onto each other. Old King James translation, they cleave, they hang on to each other. And notice what he says here. They hold fast and the two shall become one. Now, in one instance, you're grabbing a hold of each other, and then he's going to round that off in verse 6. He's going to say, so they're no longer two, but they are one. So there's this present state that exists. When we get married, we are one. But on the front end, he says, you're going to hold fast. On the back end, the two are no longer two, but they are now one. And in the middle, he makes the statement, they shall become one. So marriage is a process as well as a, an established state. You are one. But the scriptures allow for the fact that you, in the moment that you grasp onto each other, you're becoming one. There's something that starts at the moment you say, I do, but at the same time, there is something which is already an accomplished reality. God's purpose in marriage is that the two will become one, perfectly one in mind, perfectly one in spirit, perfectly one in body. They become one unit. Now, for those of us who are married, how long did it take until you had your first fight? Yeah, you're laughing. 45 minutes. You said I do. You jumped in the car to go on your honeymoon, and something happened. Well, what about the... No, no, you. No, you do. And you're on your honeymoon. 
I, 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 hope you're, I hope you are blessed to not fight with your spouse on your honeymoon, but I will confess to you something my wife and I didn't fully talk about or discuss when we got married. Which side of the bed will we each sleep on? And we both had a thing for the right side. And so, yes, that becomes a conversation, which is necessary because you're becoming one, so somebody has to pick a side, right? You can't both sleep on the right side. I tell a funny story about my wife. Maybe I should. I'll go ahead. Um, <clears throat> on our honeymoon, she tried to kill me, literally. Not intentionally, but it was an assault on my life. Um, she slept with a teddy bear as a girl in high school, and and, uh, and then eventually, well, as a, as a girl in, in elementary school, sorry, as an elementary school. And then in high school, that turned into she would, like, clutch her pillow, right? And so we had this whole discussion. Well, I like to sleep on my right with my pillow. It's like, well, I sleep on, we went back and forth, we went back and forth. Anyway, so we're sleeping, and she likes to clutch her pillow. So, and she's a thrasher. My wife is a thrasher, and I'm like, I'm like a mummy when I sleep. I'm just like this the whole time, right? I don't move. My wife, all over the place, and, and just in her dreams, just kicking and flailing. So she rolls over on top of me. I'm sleeping like a mummy, pillow behind me. And she rolls over on top of me, and she had this pillow on her that she was snuggling with. So she rolls over on top to where the pillow is on my face, and then she's like flashing, th thrashing and flailing. And, and then she finds my pillow under my head, and then she like <laughs> does that so that I'm now sandwiched between these pillows, suffocating to death. When you get married, there's a lot you got to work through. You know? It wasn't the most romantic sort of wake-up call at 2 a.m., but, uh, you know, you, you work through those things. I can safely, I can say to you now, after 15 years of marriage, that doesn't happen, but maybe once a month or so. I mean, we've worked through it, but it was a, an interesting thing. We are one. We've come together. We've said our vows. We are in a state in the Lord's eyes of being one. It's an, a, a fait accompli as far as God is concerned. His will for our marriage, for our lives, is that we are one. It's a done deal in the Lord's eyes. But at the same time, we're moving towards that. And so the Lord says, therefore a man holds fast to his wife and the two, so he's holding fast, the two become. They start this process of becoming one, so they're becoming one, but at the same time, he comes back and says, so they're not two anymore, they're one, which is to emphasize the point that God's will in marriage is that after a lifetime together, we can say after 50 years or 40 years, however the case may be, we can say we are one. We can say that from the moment that we say our vows, but we are progressing more and more and more to this state of perfect unity and perfect harmony. That's what God's will is in marriage, that you are one, becoming one, becoming more and more one, okay? If we can divorce for any minor reason. And if we can entertain the notion that divorce is acceptable for any small little thing, then we have failed to grasp the goal and the design and the intention of marriage at the outset. So the, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, whoa, if that's the case, that we're one, then why did Moses command us to divorce our wives and to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Which is a misquote of Moses. 
It's in Deuteronomy 24. Don't flip there. Just listen. This is what Moses says. He says, when a man finds some indecency in his wife and he divorces her and he gives her a certificate of divorce and sends her away and she goes and she meets another man and they get married. If then that next husband dies or they divorce, she cannot go back to the first husband. That's what Moses is saying. Now, you have to understand the context in Moses' day and age. It's an agrarian society. The only living to be had, the only career that you get is farming, okay, or shepherding. You only eat if you're involved in farming or if you're involved in shepherding. Both activities require property. Property is passed down through male descent. All the men hand all their property over to their sons, and the daughters are married. So the daughter goes and marries a man, and he provides for her, and he takes care of her, and the property flows down that way. What was happening, because going all the way back to the beginning of time, divorce has always been bitter and painful and heartbreaking and gut-wrenching. The man would find something wrong in his relationship with his wife, and he'd kick her out, her and her kids. This is a society that is also actively practicing polygamy in which you'll have multiple wives and multiple sets of kids. So he finds something wrong with wife, say, number three. Away with you. The only way she can care for herself or her kids is by being looked after by some man with some property who can grow crops or have sheep or cattle or something. Which means if she's going to take care of her kids, she's got to go marry. So she does. Now, because divorce is always bitter and always filled with jealousy and always gut-wrenching, what would happen is, in order to provide for her kids, provide for herself, she'd go marry, and then he would turn around and say, that's adultery. You're still my wife. How dare you go marry someone else? And the penalty for adultery in ancient Israel... It's the death penalty. You're not allowed to break marriage to go have a relationship with another person. So what you have is you have a husband kicking the wife out. She needs to do something to provide for her family. So she's trying to go marry another person. And then husband that sent her away in order to stick it to her, and out of jealous rage to stick it to the new husband, would accuse the both of them of adultery, which puts both of their lives in jeopardy, facing the death penalty. So what Moses is saying is, when this happens, he's not saying do this, but he's saying when this happens, number one, you will not send her out of your house without giving her a certificate of divorce, certifying that you are in fact divorcing her, meaning she's now free to go and marry another man, and you can't pull the adultery card after the fact, number one. Number two, when she goes and marries another guy, they become one flesh, which signifies that the one flesh union that she had with you is now permanently and totally broken and severed, which means now that she's one flesh with this guy, not you. And if this guy dies, then she has to go marry again, again, in order to provide for herself and her family, 
She's not coming back to you. Which means that the whole thrust of what Moses is saying is marriage's intention and design is that they become one and they hold together and they are to be permanently one, which means if you break that plan, there is no going back. If she goes to form a union with someone else, she is now, in order to protect that union, she's got to focus on being one with that. She's not coming back to you. Jesus says to them, this whole practice is not God's design. It is due to your own sinfulness. His response, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to do this. Well, why? Well, because the poor girl has to eat and provide for her kids. And you are so sinful and so hard-hearted, something had to be done here. So Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. He did not command you to do it. That is a misquote. Jesus doesn't go there. He just says it was permitted, not commanded, because of your hard hearts. However, he takes it back to Genesis 2. From the beginning, it wasn't to be that way. Marriage, from the design of it, is where I say to my wife, or you say to your husband, for better or worse, in sickness and health, for richer or poorer, come the good times, come the bad times. Doesn't matter what times we're in, I'm with you, no matter what. That's what marriage is. Now, we understand marriage principally as a moment of ooey-gooey, mushy, lovey, sentimental sort of, I love you, you're so cute. No, no, you're so cute. I got married as, well, I wasn't, I, I just had turned, I was 20. My wife was still a teenager. We got married young. And so, when you begin marriage, particularly at a younger age. I would say most of the time at any age, when you first make that commitment, a lot of it is operating out of that passion, that emotional appeal. And that's good. You should be excited to be with your wife or your husband. You should feel that emotional passion. You should desire that emotional intimacy. We're designed that way. But marriage, as we're seeing here in this text, is not mainly about being in love, although that's a part of it. Marriage is mainly about loving, even when you're not necessarily in love. So I'm using love in two slightly different ways here. Some of you are saying, that's cheating. You can't do that. Yes, I can, because that's the way the Bible uses it. Most of you may not know this. Maybe many of you have heard of this. In the Greek text, there are multiple words for love. There's storke. There's eros. We get the word erotic from eros, so you can kind of tell what kind of love that is. There's agape, and there's phileis or phileo. 
Agapao, to love someone. Phileo, to love someone. They both mean the same thing. We translate it the same way. But the words actually have different meanings. They both mean love, but in a slightly different sense. Agapao is, I love you because of who you are, because of what you are. I am committed to you because of the inherent value that is there. And no matter how I feel about you, I will love you. Phileo is to say, I love you because you make me feel good and warm and fuzzy on the inside. Phileo is more of a passionate love, but agapao is a deeper, more binding, more committed love. And what we find here in marriage, Jesus is saying that marriage, by design, is to move us off of maybe eros type of love or phileo type of love into that agapao, that deeper, committed type of love, which means that if you enter into a marital relationship, if you get down on one knee and you propose, or conversely, you say, I do, I will, but yes, let's get married, and you have it in the back of your mind, if this thing doesn't work out, you know, I can always, I guess, just get divorced two, three years down the road. Then you're not married in the sense or according to the design and the plan that Christ has for marriage. If you enter into any kind of a marital relationship with strings attached, with caveats in place, if you enter into marriage intentionally leaving yourself an out, you're not practicing marriage according to God's design. Jesus makes this statement. You get married, you stay married. You will not divorce. You never divorce. But then he allows for an exception. Divorce doesn't happen if you get into fights. Divorce doesn't happen if you uh, disagree about how your children are to be educated. Divorce doesn't happen if you argue over the budget and the finances. All of those things place strain on the marriage. All of those things can make marriage horrible. But Christ says when it comes to divorce, biblically, this is what constitutes legitimate grounds for divorce. And it goes hand in hand with the passage that the Pharisees quoted from Moses. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and of course, this goes both ways, husbands who divorce their wives or wives who divorce their husbands, except for sexual immorality, anybody who engages in divorce and marries another, apart from sexual immorality, is committing adultery which is a huge smack to the Pharisees. The whole purpose behind the certificate of divorce that Moses commanded you to give your wives when you divorce her was so that you couldn't accuse her of adultery after you divorce. But Jesus comes back and he says, I'll tell you the truth though, you're engaging in adultery if you're remarrying if you're divorcing and, and div just for any old reason and getting remarried apart from sexual morality. Now, I can't go into all the details of this today, but this is going to go hand in hand with the passage we're going to look at next week regarding eunuchs. The sexual union in a marriage is a part of the process of the oneness. It's a part of the design. And when you break that sexual union to engage in sexual relations with another partner, Christ is saying here, 
that if you divorce for any other reason except for that reason and remarry, you're engaged in adultery. From this, Orthodox Christianity has understood that we are to regard marriage as sacred, that it is a holy estate that we enter into, and we are not free to break that estate for any reason except one. Our spouse has already broken that union of oneness by establishing a oneness with someone else. In other words, we're not free to leave for any reason other than if our spouse has kicked us out of that oneness relationship by forming a oneness with someone else. There's one other reason Jesus doesn't touch on here, but it is mentioned in the scriptures. I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 7, verse 12. Paul makes the statement, To the rest of you I say, I, not the Lord, by which we mean that Paul isn't quoting Jesus. Nevertheless, this is still scripture. This is still being written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means it's still binding. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. Marriage is a sanctifying and sanctified state. To be married is to be in a process whereby you're making your spouse better. If you're a Christian and you follow Jesus and your husband or your wife is not, the marriage still brings blessing to that unbelieving spouse. And Paul's statement is, so long as your unbelieving spouse is willing to stick it out with you, you stick it out with them. He goes on. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, that is, with one of you being a Christian, they are holy. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, so that would be the Christian, he references the Christian as the brother or sister. If the unbelieving partner wants to leave, let it be so. The believer, the brother or the sister, is not enslaved, God has called you to peace. If you are married to someone and you are a Christian, God's will for your life is that you're to stick with that person no matter how bad it gets, no matter how crazy it is, so long as, number one, they're not a believer, they're happy to continue the relationship with you, Number two, so long as the other person does not engage in sexual immorality. If that person engages in sexual immorality, they have established a oneness with someone else, I think that the scriptures would still call us to be true to that relationship, but to forgive and to persevere and to try to remedy that situation. But if the, unbelie if the spouse engages in sexual immorality or the spouse is an unbeliever and says, I don't want anything to do with your Christianity anymore, in those two situations, you're free to leave. 
in the situation in Corinth, Corinth is like first century Vegas, but way worse. Way, way worse. They say in Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happened in Corinth was so bad that it never was going to stay in Corinth. People whispered about it and talked about it, and it left Corinth. And the whole nation, the whole empire knew how bad Corinth was. In fact, they invented a word to describe it. Corinthia mazo, which means to Corinthianize. I mean, they named the practice of open, flagrant debauchery after the city. To run around and Corinthianize was to act like a heathen, like the Corinthians. You know, that's how bad it was. In Corinth, husbands, Roman baths were popular, in which both men and women would take baths together, down at these baths. And in Corinth, one of the practices was a husband would take his wife down to the bath. They would strip down naked with many other husbands and wives there. The men would engage in comparisons and trading. Hey, why don't you sleep with my wife? I'll sleep with your wife. This kind of practice went on. So now in Corinth, you have a woman who comes to faith in Christ. And whereas beforehand, that practice might not have bothered her, she says, I want to live for the Lord. I want to be holy. I want to be pure. I want to be devoted to you as my husband. But listen, this is what the Bible says. We're one flesh. I only belong to you. Now for a Corinthian man, his wife gets saved. He doesn't have anything to barter with anymore down at the bath. That might upset him. And as horrific as it sounds, it might upset him to the point where he says, you know what? I don't like this Christianity thing you've got going on. I don't want anything to do with you or this or any of it. I'm out of here. And what Paul is saying is in the event that your unbelieving spouse leaves, it's okay. They're called to peace. But in both instances, sexual immorality, or an unbelieving spouse. God's desire for you would be to pursue that relationship. I want to hit the pause button here for just a second and say something. It is a routine thing to encounter both Christians and uh, Christians who divorced and unbelievers who divorced who then eventually became Christians. And whether you were an unbeliever and you divorced as an unbeliever or whether you're a Christian and for whatever reason you couldn't get along with your spouse and you made the decision to divorce, it is common for those types of individuals later on down the road to feel the pain and the heartache of that divorce and to regret it. And the question comes, what do I do in this situation where I am a divorced Christian? Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. The scriptures are very clear. There's only one sin that won't be forgiven. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Meaning, if God comes to you and tries to lead you to faith to try and get you saved, and you say, no, I don't want any of that, well, that's the unforgivable sin. To reject Christ is to land in hell. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Yes, there are many brothers and sisters who are divorced. Yes, that is tragic and heartbreaking. And I'm sure nobody would be able to testify to that more clearly than them knowing the heartache and the tragedy and the suffering of a failed marriage. So if you're here today and divorced, which I don't think is any of us, or if you're listening on the podcast and you're divorced, the question is, what do I do? 
you delight in the grace and the forgiveness of the cross. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. What you are to do is what all of us are to do anytime any of us fails in our walk with the Lord. Confess, yes, I did this. It was wrong. It did not live up to God's standard. This is what the Lord desired. I am sorry and heartbroken. And praise be to the Father who has made provision. He has taken my sin and nailed it to the cross. I am forgiven. I am ransomed. I am redeemed. I am free. For the divorced brother or sister, you can't go back and remarry. And for many divorced brothers and sisters, they already find themselves in a new marital relationship. Let that marriage be all that God wants it to be. Live it for the glory of God. Take the deepest joy in that union. But be careful to acknowledge God's design is this, not this. We can be honest about our failures in Christ because all of us have failed. Having said that, Christ's design for marriage is that it will be one man and one woman for life until one of them dies. Or, if they should be married to an unbelieving spouse, it will be until that unbelieving spouse says, forget this, I don't want anything to do with your Christianity anymore. Or, if the spouse commits immorality, sexual immorality, in which case you try to work through it. You try to work through it in both situations, but if you can't, then you're free to divorce at that point too. Nevertheless, God's design by his grace, for his glory, one man and one woman for life until one of them dies. Say, so that's really easy to say, Clay Camp. You don't know my wife. Maybe you shouldn't say that, okay. <laughs> if you're here with a spouse and you are tempted to say that, we'll talk later. Don't blurt that out in this room of like five people. That would be way worse. You see here, when you look at this passage, that faithfulness is supposed to be a part of the Christian life. Commitment making, to make commitments, is supposed to be a part of the Christian life. Absolutely. But when we look at marriage, we think of it as, oh, it's when a man and a woman are just so in love with each other. Yes, that's a part of it. I want you, though, to just consider with me the meaning of this word love. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 13. Now, we talk about being in love as though it's some sort of a pit that we fall into. Like, we're just walking along, and all of a sudden we see this beautiful girl. Bam! We've fallen into a pit. We're in love now. Like, we're, we're somehow trapped in our, you know, in our emotions, and we say things like, oh, the heart wants what it wants. You know, I have to be with this girl, you know. We talk this way. It's kind of crazy talk, but it's true. Like, all of us probably have... Either, if we're honest, confess that we felt that way, or if we're not honest, we'll at least say we know people who have, who have experienced this. Now, that said, we have to ask ourselves the pivotal question. When talking about love and what love is, do we see love described as some sort of a pit, some sort of a booby trap that we fall into that's just waiting out there hidden, has kind of like branches and stuff laid over it, and we just fall into it, okay? So I want to read to you the primary chapter on love, and you be the judge. 
Is there any pit mentioned here? Say, okay, but what if it's not a pit? What if it's more like being on cloud nine? Okay, you be the judge. Is there any sort of an aeroplane sort of type of description here? Are you falling? Are you whisked up into the clouds? I'm going to read the passage. You just look with me, okay? 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 4. Look for the pit. Look for the airplane. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. Whoa! Don't take my word for it now. Did you, did you, Mr. Rob, did you see a pit? No. B, no pit. How about an airplane being on cloud nine? Anybody see cloud nine in there? If you've ever been on cloud nine, cloud nine is great, but cloud nine comes to an end. Look at what it says here. Love never ends. Whoa, like what is this? Our metaphors to describe love, namely I've fallen in love, or namely I'm high on cloud nine, these types of things, are not biblical metaphors. If we were to suggest a metaphor that would accurately capture what love is, particularly as we look at 1 Corinthians 13, the classic passage on love, love is more like a tough mountain that we're trying to climb up. Love is like hard. Love is something that it will call for all of you to give all of yourself to a person, to a relationship, to better the other person. Love is not self-concerned. Do you notice that? I'll read it to you again. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Well, yeah, it doesn't insist on its own way so long as my husband gives me what I want. Then that we can just agree that I'm right and he's wrong. Well, that will go for a season until you hit verse 6. Doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Every man and every husband, every husband, every wife, sooner or later, somebody's wrong. You're both wrong sooner or later. Which means that, yeah, we, we don't have to seek my own way so long as he just naturally agrees with me. Sooner or later, you're going to be wrong. That's when the fights start, that's when the arguing begins. And then love ends. No, because it doesn't say that. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It never ends. Cloud nine ends, guys. The pit that we fall into when we're in love, we've fallen into love. We climb out of that pretty quick. For me, it happened the moment my wife tried to kill me on our honeymoon. Like, I was like, whoa, what is this? I'm sleeping with a terrorist. I, you know, this isn't... <laughs> I didn't sign up for this, you know, I, but I did, though, is the point. I made that commitment, and she doesn't try to kill me on a regular basis. Don't get, Shanti's beautiful. She's wonderful. I don't, don't, uh, don't get the wrong idea. Love is a, a thing that we do which calls for our all, and true love, biblical love, can only be learned and cultivated in a commitment that we promise we will never break. I want to read to you a story um, about a couple, a married couple, um, Jack and Grace. 
They met through a mutual friend, and from the very beginning, it seemed to be a perfect match. Grace was everything that Jack had always wanted. She was beautiful, outgoing, uncaring about herself. She wasn't selfish. She was always there when Jack needed her. And for the first five months of their relationship, they were inseparable. Jack could hardly think of anything else but grace. Ah, he had grace on the brain. She didn't need to look any further than him, and he didn't need to look any further than her. He told his friends, she's the one for me. He was in love. Now, almost three years have passed, Jack still enjoys the comfort and the familiarity of being with Grace, but the spark is gone. Grace's flaws seem more obvious. He's not sure he finds her as attractive as he once did, and he's beginning to resent all the time that she wants to spend with him. One night, she asks if they can have, you know, that conversation, defining the relationship. Jack blows up. We're together, aren't we? Isn't that enough for you? Obviously, Jack isn't ready for this type of a relationship. Maybe he never will be. There are millions of Jacks walking around today, but can I let you in on a little secret? Grace isn't a girl. Grace is the name of his church. Now, I'm about to apply this passage in a very unusual way, but it's totally fitting. The church is described as the bride of Christ. The church is understood to be the bride of Christ that belongs to Jesus. And anytime we make a commitment to Jesus, we're making a commitment to the church. There is no Christian walk apart from a commitment to the church. There is no walking with Jesus, there is no commitment to Jesus if there is not also a commitment to church. In Ephesians chapter 5, it uses the explicit metaphor. Paul makes the statement, he says, Husbands are to love their wives, and wives are to be submitted to, the, to their husbands, and husbands are to love their wives the way that Christ loves the church and died for the church and gave himself up for the church. So also husbands are to love their wives. And then he makes this profound statement. He says, what I'm saying is a mystery, but when I'm talking about marriage, I'm actually talking about Jesus and the church, which means that the commitment that we are called to have for our spouses is the commitment that we are also called to have for the church. In an age that says, let's just keep our options open, I don't want to make any binding commitments, I don't want to be bound to anything long term, we find that number one, our society is imploding because what it leads to is there's no stability, there's no reliability, and at the end of the day, we can't fully trust each other, which holds all of our growth back. This happens on two levels. The most obvious, clear-cut application of this passage, number one, it happens in the marriage relationship. But that is also infecting what goes on in the church. The excerpt that I read to you is a quote from Josh Harris's book, Stop Dating the Church. The church is relatively weak all across North America right now because most people enter into a relationship with the church as though it's something that they can take or leave. It's not something we have to be bound to. It's not something we have to be committed to. I mentioned to you earlier in the sermon, I'm about to go along, I might have to finish this next week, but Last Sunday night, I had coffee with two wonderful people from First Baptist Church, both over the age of 70. One had a hearing aid, and then the other gentleman was sitting there, and he shared with me his wife has had 11 surgeries over the past 20 years. She has this non-malignant tumor that keeps growing in her brain, and they've had to cut it out multiple times. We were talking, we're having this conversation. These guys have been going to church together for over 30 years now. They've been 
worshiping together, serving together, building the kingdom of God together. The whole conversation, we're just talking, we're yucking it up. You know, I like to drive motorcycles. I, I don't, but I, I like to. Um, and he builds motorcycles and is involved in all this. And the whole time we're going back and forth about fabricating and building old cars and restoring old cars. And the, the gentleman with the hearing aid is like, speak up, I can't hear you. And so we kept talking louder. The conversation progresses and it comes to the point where he starts to share about his wife. And of course, he loves his wife. And so in his heartache over the illness that his wife is going through, his voice starts to get really soft. And it drops lower and lower to where I'm having even myself to lean across the table to hear him. Do you suppose that the fellow with the hearing aid could hear anything we're saying? He begins the sentence, and about halfway through, he gets choked up, and he, start, he stops talking. And the fellow with the hearing aid, without missing a beat, finishes the sentence. Can he hear anything that's going on? No. And yet somehow, because these two gentlemen have worshipped the same father together, they have lived beside each other, they have sacrificed and served for the kingdom, they have built this type of intimate koinonia fellowship to where even though he may not even know exactly what's being said, he knows exactly what's being said. I have experienced a taste of this myself. A number of months ago, my father had to go through serious spinal surgery. He had significantly damaged his neck. And when I found out that he was going to have to have spinal, my mom calls me, tells me, it's bad, it's bad. And I was heartbroken and sad for my dad, worried about what was going to happen to him. Hang up the phone. About 45 seconds, maybe a minute goes by, and I'm sitting there thinking about all this, praying about all this, the phone rings. Kyla. Hello? Hey, how's it going? Of course, the knee-jerk response, great, how are you doing? She says, oh, I'm good. For whatever reason, I just all of a sudden felt the overwhelming need like I should call you and make sure you're doing okay. Now, I know Kyla wasn't in the room to hear that conversation with my dad, but yet she still instinctively felt something deep in her soul. I should probably call Josh and make sure he's okay. Of course, I've been doing church with Kyla for over a decade now. We've been working and serving together over 10 years. Churches are weak because we treat them like they're fast food drive throughs People come to church and they say, this is really not any different than a Starbucks. We all kind of sit around, we drink our coffee, we hear some entertaining stuff, and then we're on our way out the door. That breaks my heart because that is totally not what church should be. If marriage is the state of coming to oneness, they're wondering when I'll be quiet and sit down, the kids in the Sunday school classroom. I'm almost done, just be patient. If marriage is the state of oneness, and if Christians are called to pursue oneness with Christ, to be one in Christ, then what we see in a married couple that's been married for 50-some-odd years where they walk in step, they finish each other's sentences, they know exactly how each other likes their coffee, and they even sort of start to look like each other after 50 years of living together. Then wouldn't it be beautiful to see that same sort of thing 
in church? Wouldn't that be a rich, wonderful place to go to? My application for you this morning is, number one, if you're married, don't seek a divorce. It's hard, yes, absolutely. It's always hard. Work through it. There's something so much more beautiful and precious waiting for you at the end of a lifetime spent together than the fleeting pleasure that is temporary and quickly gone of seeking immediate relief from whatever fight or tense situation you find yourself in with your spouse. And conversely, I say the same thing about church. Too often we say, ah, somebody said something I don't like, or ah, that guy is mean to me. Most of the time it's just our perceptions are flawed. Sometimes it's true, we are mean to each other. Regardless, don't give in to that. There's something beautiful waiting on the other side of the argument. There's something beautiful waiting on the other side. There's a fellow who divorced his wife, and he was broken, heartbroken over it. Somehow, deep down, he knew it wasn't the right thing to do, so he went to work at a retirement home with married couples there. And as he observes their long-standing marriages, some of them have been married over 50 years, he comes to a profound understanding. He makes the statement, I was beginning to suspect at the end of the day it made no difference whether they'd married the right person or not. It didn't matter whether they married the right person or not. Finally, you're just with whomever it is that you're with. You're just with that person. You've signed on with her. You've put in half a century with her. You've grown to know her as well as you know yourself maybe even better than you know yourself. And whether or not she was the right person doesn't matter because she has become the right person. She's become the only person for you. I wish someone had told me that when I attempted to divorce my wife. When I, when I divorced my wife, I'd have attempted to hold on better. I swear I would never have left Natalie if I'd seen the beauty of those relationships. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Letters and Papers from Prison, makes this statement. As you give the ring to one another and have now received the ring back from each other and from the hand of your pastor, so love may come from you, but marriage comes from above. Love comes from you, but marriage comes from God. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promises, not of love, but of marriage. It is not your love that will always sustain the marriage. From now on, your marriage will sustain your love. Let's bow for a word of prayer.